From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. More protests are planned over police killings of black Americans. In Denver last night, a volatile scene as demonstrators and police clashed. Denverite's Donna Bryson was on the scene. We'll also speak with a DU professor who was among the peaceful majority of protesters. Then what would a doctor do? Get a haircut? Go to a restaurant? We'll find out. And later, a book for young readers about foster care and opioid addiction, but also about magic and tortoise snot, an image the author hasn't been able to shake since a childhood trip to a reptile zoo. I always tell kids when I do school presentations, you just never know what in your life today is going to be an inspiration to you in 20 years. Turn the page with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. My face is on fire. That's how April Alexander described the effects of being sprayed last night with some sort of chemical. Denver police were trying to disperse demonstrators near the state capitol, most of whom were peacefully protesting the police killings of black Americans. There was vandalism and objects thrown at officers. More shortly from Denverites Donna Bryson, who was on the scene, but first... April Alexander, she's a forensic psychology professor at DU who works with incarcerated populations. Professor, what do you think you were exposed to? I honestly have no clue. There have been various reports of what the substance is or isn't. Some people refer to it as tear gas. Others refer to it as pepper spray. Um, I think I saw reports of people finding pepper pellets. What did it feel like? Uh, It was burning when the initial smoke hit. Um, I started running, and then additional smoke was deployed from the opposite side of me. So I was getting it from both sides of my face. Um, So I started making the way down an alley. And by that point, my eyes were running and burning. Uh, I couldn't see. And I was really fortunate to run into some allies who had milk. And so they immediately sprayed uh, my face with milk, which helped to diffuse the burn uh, quite a bit. And then my throat uh, was continuing to burn, uh, and they encouraged me to get sprayed in the throat, and that's what we did. And again, that subsided right away. But by the time I got to my car and I drove home, my cheeks were still burning. When you say sprayed in the throat, you mean with milk? Yeah, with milk. Is that the first time this has happened to you, something like this? It is. Obviously, I've went to direct action training before uh, through Black Lives Matter 5280 and different organizations. And they've talked about this, but I never imagined that I would actually endure it. Why were you out protesting? Talk about your own personal reasons for being there. Absolutely. It's really disheartening to me in these last few years to see so many lives lost to state-sanctioned violence, that we're just losing too many people in our community, in our nation, to this violence. And so I wanted to be out there in support of my community. I wanted to be out there to grieve. We were out there to talk about Breonna Taylor and the events that happened in Minnesota. But I also wanted to be there because we just had Elijah McClain, a young man who died in Aurora uh, just a few months ago. So I was out there to honor those folks. I was out there to support our community. And I was out there to bring awareness that this violence needs to stop. Brianna Taylor, who died in March during a police raid in Louisville, you mentioned in Minneapolis, that's the case of George Floyd, who died Monday after an officer knelt on his neck. 
Uh, You are African-American, Professor Alexander. Is there a fear that you live with about police encounters? Absolutely. Uh, There was recent research that came out last year that said uh, police-involved shootings is the sixth leading cause of death in the United States right now for African-Americans. So I can exercise and diet to uh, reduce my rate of getting heart disease, diabetes, cancers, but I'm not sure what I can do in order to prevent police violence. Do you plan to keep protesting? I do. I want to continue speaking out until, um, again, this violence is stopped. What does that look like, this violence is stopped? What does that look like to you uh, in terms of specific steps? I think what our communities are looking for is accountability. We've always strived through the civil rights movement uh, for equality. So why is it that people were at the Capitol a few weeks ago and nothing was thrown at them? They weren't gassed. And they got the results. Uh, They were able to get the haircuts that they were asking for just two weeks later. But we have people who were arriving yesterday who were not armed, who were just chanting, and we had gas thrown at us, and we're still not seeing results. So I think what I'm looking for, what our community is looking for, is accountability. Is there anything I haven't asked that you want to say? (sighs) I'm still so emotional right now. Um, The mayor, the governor, and other legislators were watching and listening last night. I'm hoping that we can continue these conversations about how do we create accountability in our communities. And I hope we find solutions to this. The intent of yesterday's protest was not to create violence, uh, but to, again, bring awareness to what's going on in our communities in terms of this police violence. And you have the head of public safety for Denver. You have those in law enforcement in Colorado uh, condemning what they saw in Minneapolis with George Floyd. I wonder if that gives you some some comfort. Yes, I saw a report from the Fraternal Order of Police. Uh, they actually came down and said, yes, this was unacceptable, that they did want to hold the officers accountable for their behaviors and actions in uh, Minneapolis. So that does give me some hope that this is now reaching a level where um, everyone is on board for community safety. Uh, And again, that's community safety for everyone. Well, I want to thank you for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. April Alexander was among the protesters in Denver last night, and we want to round out our understanding of those events and look ahead. My colleague Donna Bryson is on the line from Denverite. Hi, Donna. Good morning, Ryan. You had a vantage point Thursday near the state capitol when things started to devolve several hours into the protest. There was a large crowd still gathered, and you saw one of the vandals. What did he do? Well, I was opposite the uh, south side of the capitol, and I could see a guy with a stick or possibly a baseball bat just um, beating up on two vehicles, two official vehicles, a big black truck and a big black car. And I have to stress it was one guy. Um, around him, probably several hundred protesters who were protesting, who were showing some of that that passion we just heard from the, the interview you just did. But they were they were angry, they were passionate, and they were peaceful for the most part. That's what I saw in the couple of hours I was out there last night. I know that at one point you talked with a young man who showed you a wound on his leg. Um, he said he wasn't protesting, but I guess he he got caught up in the unrest. Yeah, a young man named gave me his name as Marque Willoughby, and he showed me kind of a, a swollen, puncture kind of wound, bloody on, on on his leg. He said he had been watching the protest, uh, recording it with his phone, and he was shot. And he says that he didn't see that anyone was attacking the police when that happened. Um, 
other people who I spoke to in the same area said they had seen some rock throwing, but I have to say I didn't see any rocks littering the street. I didn't see broken glass littering the street. Um, but I did see this one young man with a, he described it as a rubber bullet wound. I'm not sure quite what it was. And while I was speaking with him, uh, a stranger came by saying, does anyone need first aid? And uh, he stopped and gave this young man some alcohol, some hydrogen peroxide to, to sanitize his wound. He had this uh, this good Samaritan also had a bunch of rags that he, he stripped off a piece that uh, that Mr. Willoughby was able to use to daub his wound. And then as the man left, he looked at Mr. Willoughby and said, are you registered to vote? And then he <laughs> smiled when Willoughby said he was. And walked off into the crowd saying, anyone need first aid? You were near some of the gas canisters deployed by police. I, th- I think you could hear some explosive sounds. Talk a little bit about that experience, Donna Bryson. Uh, after walking down Colfax for a bit, I went back to the Capitol. There's a good vantage point on the steps of, a, of another state building right opposite the Capitol to the, to the south of the Capitol. And from there, I could hear these explosive, these percussive noises. And then I started to see a large cloud of smoke coming up the hill toward uh, toward me, toward the protesters at that point. And very quickly, just overcome with uh, stinging eyes, stinging throat, hard to see. Uh, I uh, got myself down the steps and back around down the corner and just rested there until I could feel like it opened my eyes again and then went back and... Uh, took my vantage point again and again, heard this time a longer series of, of these noises, of these explosive noises. And uh, this time I kind of moved before I saw the clouds come. There were some strange contrasts on Thursday. Restaurants open along Colfax, people walking their dogs. It was like block to block, very different images. Um, but just in, in about the last minute, Donna Bryson, uh, we know that more protests are planned uh, today into the weekend. What what questions do you have moving forward? I want to check questions about what the police used and, and what the police strategy was. I think protesters probably have those same questions. Uh, and also observers. There were plenty of people I spoke to that night who wondered uh, about how it, how it had escalated. And I guess that's the main question now and and whether there will be more escalations. Thanks so much for being with us, Donna. Thank you. Bye-bye. My colleague Donna Bryson, more of her team's coverage at denverite.com at CPR.org. Up next, when it comes to everyday outings amid coronavirus, what would the doctor do? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you gave in the last member drive, you already know how much your gift matters to this station. Your gift not only strengthens local journalism right in your community, it also helps fund national reporting all over the world. So we just wanted to say... Obrigado. Salamat po. Kamsamnida. Muchisimas gracias. Shukran jazilan. Spasibo. Grazie. Arigato gozaimasu. Danyavad. Todaraba. Merci beaucoup. Gerajup. Merci ktir. Shishitaja. Thank you from all of us. As Coloradans venture out during Safer at Home, we wondered how medical experts who fight coronavirus every day decide which of their own errands and activities are safe or still off limits. Dr. Ken Lin Q is a critical care pulmonologist at National Jewish Health. And welcome back to the program, doctor. 
Well, thank you for having me. And Dr. Michelle Barron directs infection control and prevention at the University of Colorado Hospital. And thanks again for being with us, Dr. Barron. Always my pleasure. Okay, we got to start with haircuts. Long gray hair became a symbol of this pandemic. Uh, Dr. Barron, I understand you got a cut in color just last week. You hadn't been to the salon since early March. How was it different this time? Um, so obviously some of the differences were that I ended up coming through the back door instead of the front door, um, because he moved his area so that he could socially distance from the other person that works in the salon. Um, I had to wear a mask. Um, I didn't just sort of march in. He texted me ahead of time and said, when I'm ready for you, I'll text you and you can come into the salon at that time. And then he told me I'd be coming through the back. So all a little different than what I would normally experience, but not anything too terrible. And did you feel that it was safe? The key question we'll be asking uh, the both doctors throughout this conversation. Yeah, I actually felt very safe. And this is someone that's been cutting my hair a very long time. So I'm pretty familiar with his practices already. And he had prepared ahead of time in terms of just letting me know that I needed to wear a mask, that it needed to be a loop mask because he couldn't manipulate around my hair if it was tied behind my head. (laughs) Um, And just little things that he had already kind of reassured me that this would be perfectly safe for me to show up. So there's a relationship there. There's trust. That goes into the decision you made. Dr. Lin Q, have you gotten a haircut outside the house? No Floby involved? I have a pandemic-proof haircut in that I'm bald, so okay. I have not had to think about this. <laughs> uh, you are clearly not in the studio with us. I can't see uh, your head. Uh, but did you have any general thoughts about uh, whether you'd let friends or family get their haircut these days? Yeah, I think that it's like Michelle said, I think um, that if um, you take the right precautions, there's a lot of things that are, you know, fairly safe to do as long as you have the right precautions in place. So, you know, having that relationship, I think is key. Like I wouldn't let my my kids and my wife walk into like a brand new place that they've never been to without knowing what the precautions are, but going someplace that you've been before you're comfortable with their protocols. I think as long as you have that relationship and that comfort, it's something you can do. You know, I'm really curious about um, dining inside a restaurant because more and more restaurants are opening their dining rooms because they have to keep patrons six feet apart. They're at half capacity, no more than 50 people inside. Michelle Barron, would you grab a bite to eat out in those conditions? I would consider it. I think the problem on my end is that I like to have long, leisurely dinners, and I'm not sure they would be real thrilled that I'm there for two hours if they're trying to increase their capacity and get people moving around. So that might be an impediment more so to them than more than myself. Do you think that you'd be comfortable? I mean, let's just imagine you leisurely dining. Would that be an experience you'd enjoy? That's part of this, too. Uh, That's a good question. I think it would certainly be odd. I think I would be watching a lot to see what other people were doing, and that might take away from some of the experience of the dining. But I think, again, if it was appropriately spaced and they hadn't, it was somewhere I'd been before, I kind of had an idea of how they were managing the precautions piece, I might be willing to try it. And you say that you'd be looking around. What would you be looking around for? 
That's a good question. I don't know. I do this anyway because nature of what I do, watching people, how they're managing, like how they're putting things down, how like water is being served if uh, um, people are wearing masks or not wearing masks. I don't know. I think I'm a people watcher anyway, but I think I would be looking more from the lens of infection control than I would normally look. Ken, what do you think on the question of dining in? Yeah, for all the same reasons that Michelle just said, um, I would not eat out personally because I would. Well, one of the major things is you know the infection control measures. You know, like not knowing. You know, we know that how the air conditioner blows can carry the droplets. It's still a droplet-borne disease. Um, There's a beautiful description of that from a restaurant in China, and. So not knowing how the air conditioning is blowing, not knowing how well they cleaned everything beforehand, I'd be staring at every table they changed over and be like, how are they cleaning this? What are they doing? What are they cleaning it with? And it would just make it stressful. And so, you know, I'd, you know, I'd rather just pick up food, support the restaurant and go eat it at home than sit there worrying about all these things. What about being outside? That's a big part of this discussion, Ken. Being outside, I think, is a very different thing, right? You have... In a lot more air, um, droplets are generally going to fall faster. Um, it's a lot easier to space yourself out from people outside. Um, so if you're referring to an outdoor restaurant, I might actually be more willing to do that than sit in an indoor restaurant. I'd still worry about how they clean the table. Like, did I touch underneath the arm of the chair? Did they clean underneath the arm of the chair? You know, like all those types of crazy things that I would be hyper vigilant about. But I think that outdoors, whether it's eating, recreating, I think it's a very different thing because it's a lot easier to generate space between people. Mm -hmm. And lots of communities are looking at how they might open spaces outdoors that weren't typically for dining, for dining. So that conversation is ongoing. I'm very curious uh, because I know both of you have been going to grocery stores and some big box stores. Do you worry about sanitizing things you buy when you bring them home, Dr. Barron? Um, no, actually, I mean, beyond what I normally do, so like fruits and vegetables, I'll generally um, wash before I consume them, and sometimes even before I put them away, depending on how organized I am. But as far as like the grocery bags or things that may be in a box, um, usually the thing I pay attention to is just my hands. I make sure that I, after I've brought everything in, I wash my hands really well, put stuff away, and then I might wipe down the countertops afterwards, but nothing too ritualistic beyond that. And that's kind of my norm even before this. Ken? I'm a little more um, OCD about that. I wiped out everything. Okay. Um, and it's just because it's that goes back to that whole observation. You, you see somebody pick up a box, they look at it, they put it down. I don't know if that person's washed their hands, right? If they have washed their hands, did they touch anything else before they touch that? And Right. And the chances of picking something up that way, admittedly, are quite low. But I'm all about any of the risks I can mitigate, mitigating of. And then because I take enough risks as it is um, at work. (laughs) And that's the perspective we're getting today from two doctors who are on the front lines of coronavirus asking how they are returning to life under safer at home. You know, gyms, yoga studios, those sorts of things will begin opening up depending on local jurisdictions. Dr. Barron, would you go to a gym, a yoga studio in, in the near future? Um, again, I'd have to 
sort of be familiar with what they were doing. So I think I would have to have some information as to how things were being set up and how they're cleaning, and I probably still would bring my own stuff if I decided to go. Um, the yoga benefit, I think, might be worth it to my mental state, if, mm. but I'd probably, again, have to have sort of all these things outlined in ahead of time before I would go so that I could actually do the practice and get the benefit that I'd want rather than being paranoid again and watching everybody instead of practicing. Yeah, I, the through line, I think, of this conversation, Dr. Barron, is is one, the trust that you have in whoever the service provider is, but also just the um, empowering, the empowerment of being able to ask questions of a facility, uh, of what their practices are, knowing that ahead of time. Yeah, absolutely. That's something I think that would I'd need to be able to feel comfortable going, whereas before maybe I wouldn't. I may have asked or may have thought about it, but not to the same extent. Ken, a question we get over and over again, you mentioned being outside and exercising, is whether people ought to be wearing masks when they are on their bikes or when they're running. Uh, what What is your answer to that? When they're on their bikes and running, no. I think that when you're outside doing that, you're generally safe. What I worry about is the one thing that we like to do here in Colorado, which is go find some trailhead that's got, like, not enough parking and people are spilling over onto the highway and crowding into that area. And I think that that's the area where people are at risk with um, outdoor recreation. I think once you're on your bike or you're out on the trail, you know, just having a mask with you in case you're within close contact with somebody for a period of time is, um, you know, it's not unreasonable. But I think that wearing it, you don't have to wear it when you're on your bike. Just as a personal reflection, I have my mask with me when I'm on my bike. uh, And that way, if I happen to ride into like a crowd of people stopped at a light or something, I can slip it on. Um, But there is some differentiation about when it's on and when it's off. I, I wonder about team sports. Um, Dr. Lin would you say just a few words about groups of people outside? Yeah, I, this one I struggle with a little bit because my kids both play um, competitive soccer, oh. my two younger kids, I should say. And, you know, practice, not a problem. When you're spaced out and you're doing your drills, no matter, you know, you're huffing and puffing, and you're breathing hard and you're going to, anything that's inside you, you're going to breathe out. Huh. But you're, you're still, again, you're spaced apart and it's not an issue. The question becomes like when they start playing together and, you know, you're defending a offensive player and you're right up on each other. And now you have this elevated respiratory rate and you're kicking out more and more than you normally would. Um, you know, that's the one I struggle with. And I think that, just briefly here. You know, this is, you know, it's one of those things like, you know, it's good for the mental health of my kids to go play soccer, right? And get out and interact with people, right? They're developing, you know, how to interact with people and how to become adults, right? Um, it's an important thing. And I want to keep them safe, right? I know the risk of them getting something is, you know, low. We have low disease penetrance right now um, in the but state. But it, it does exist. Know, the risk does exist. And I think what we've heard from this conversation is that life is in the shades of gray. Dr. Michelle Barron and Dr. Ken Lin Q offering perspective on living amidst coronavirus on CPR News. 
Chuck Murphy heads the investigative team in the CPR newsroom, leading efforts to uncover stories that some might wish would stay in the dark. Our goal is to shine a spotlight on problems that affect society, on corruption that may flourish uh, somewhere, and find the things that people don't want us to find. Look for the work of CPR's investigative team, including most recently how Colorado caught COVID-19 at CPR.org. When I was a kid, there were these read-along books. They came with a record album and later a cassette tape. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Well, we've borrowed that turn of phrase for our new reading circle, Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. We're not calling it a book club because those can feel like so much pressure. We chose our inaugural book with the idea that different generations could read together. Because of coronavirus, families are either on top of each other or they need a new activity because they're separated from grandparents or aunts and uncles and they desire connection. And so we read together and then connected hundreds of us on Facebook Live with Colorado Springs native Lindsay Lackey, author of a novel for middle grade readers called All the Impossible Things. It is about magic and loss and animals. Lindsay, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. All the Impossible Things is about a girl named Red who has magical powers. She's in the foster care system while her mother is in prison, and she gets bounced from one bad home to the next until she ends up with a family that runs a petting zoo on Colorado's Eastern Plains. Will you describe what she sees as her caseworker drives up to this, like, otherworldly property? (laughs) She is riding in the backseat of her caseworker's sedan, and she has just been kicked out of yet another foster home. And whenever Red is upset or angry or just feeling really emotional, she sort of accidentally causes the weather to get really windy and really stormy. Her emotions have this influence over the wind. And she's in the backseat of this car, and as they're turning off the highway, she notices a billboard that says Groovy Petting Zoo. And it turns out that that is the petting zoo that is owned by this new family she's going to live with. So the house is this colorful explosion of all sorts of colors, and it's sort of mismatched. And there's a garden out front with a bathtub that has marigolds that have been beheaded by a goat (laughs) that are in the front yard. And there's just a bevy of animals that that are sort of just waiting for her, waiting to slobber on her. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Yeah, they open the front door and four dogs come out. And I had a lot of fun in this book because I love animals and I love naming them funny things, um, things that mean something. So, for example, I have two dogs now and our dogs are Guido and Galileo. Guido is the man who, um, he was a monk and he invented the musical staff. And my husband and I met in college and we both met as music majors. And then Galileo, of course, is named after Galileo. So (laughs) those are my real life pets. And the ones in the books all have literary names because I love doing that with my animals. (laughs) So you've got Gandalf the dog. Is it Fezzik the donkey? Yeah, Gandalf the dog is a Newfoundland, um, a giant dog, and Fezzik the donkey is a miniature donkey. And there's Tuck Everlasting, who is a 400-pound Aldabra tortoise. So he's a huge tortoise. Yeah. And then there are three goats. 
Eight-year-old Channing Copeland of Highlands Ranch wanted to know if any of the dogs in your story are based on dogs in your life. All of the dogs are the dogs of my heart that I would love to have. (laughs) But the Newfoundland Gandalf is actually based on, I used to work for Pikes Peak Library District in Colorado Springs. And they used to have a pause to read program, P-A-W-S, pause to read. And the dogs would come in that were trained and certified to be there and kids would read to them. And so I knew these two Newfoundland dogs, these huge dogs, Newfies are giant. They probably come up to my elbows and they drool like crazy. And these two Newfies were the sweetest dogs and the kids would just climb on them like they were mountains. I love the idea of reading to dogs. That's such a cool idea. Uh, So we got a lot of questions about why you decided to focus on a child in foster care. Questions coming from Lynn Fritz of Lakewood, who read the book with her granddaughter and 11-year-old Paul Kamen of Parker. So why the foster system? Well, the inspiration for the book is based in the foster care system because about 10 years ago, my aunt and uncle, who lived at the time in Watson, Colorado, so not too far, they had grown children. They even had a grandchild, maybe even two at the time. They were empty nesters. And instead of deciding to travel the world like a lot of empty nesters decide to do, they decided to open their home to children who needed a safe place to live, and they began fostering. And so one day my aunt was at some event with a little boy that she was fostering at the time, and she saw a little girl across the room, and she said immediately she had this knowledge that that little girl would one day be her daughter. She just knew it when she saw her. And sure enough, she ended up eventually fostering that little girl through a series of events, and then they ended up adopting her a few years later. So my family just had this incredible encounter with the foster care system in that sense. And I knew from my aunt and uncle and from other friends who have fostered, you know, I've, I've seen foster care up close for a lot of people in my life. And I just knew how incredible the people who live and work and function and help the system function. These people are incredible and incredibly selfless. And there are so many wonderful stories of foster care in real life. And I wanted to celebrate that. There are a lot of negative impressions of foster care, you know, in the media. Or yeah, I think it gets a, a bad rap a lot. It really does. If there's a criminal, somebody says, oh, well, he was in foster care, you know, and that explains why he was this way. And I really hate that because there are more success stories than failures. And there are so many incredible families and incredible, incredible kids Again, your protagonist is this dynamic young woman named Red, and she goes to live with the Grooves. What a great name in Bramble, Colorado. (laughs) Kaya Stutlock asks, how did you decide that the foster parents would be somewhat non-traditional? They're older. They have children and grandchildren of their own. They're not hippies exactly, but they're they're hippie-ish. They're hippie-ish, those Eastern Plain hippies. I know you're out there. (laughs) Well, honestly, this story was inspired by my family in so many ways, but I wanted to protect my cousin's identity and her right to her own story within the foster care system. Mm. But I didn't feel that way about my aunt and uncle. I wanted to exploit their stories as much as I could. Um, So a lot of Celine and Jackson are truly based on my aunt and uncle. A lot of their strengths and 
not the the petting zoo thing. They did live on a lot of land, um, but they don't have a 400-pound tortoise. Nobody go driving out to Watson looking for this tortoise. He's not out there. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I really tried to showcase the type of foster parents that they were. And I think that happens more than you may expect for the foster parents to actually be older. They've already raised their children or, uh-huh. you know, so I, I wanted to showcase that side a little bit. You wrote this for middle grade readers, but that doesn't mean you made it all light and fluffy. I mean, we, we have mentioned foster care. Red's mom is in prison. That's why she's in the foster system. Uh, her mother struggles with addiction. Red is dealing with the death of her grandmother. There's other mm-hmm. death and, and the looming prospect of death. I mean, talk about piling it on <laughs> in a middle grade what? book. <laughs> Well, that's why I put in all the animals. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, no, that's true. There is a lot. And, you know, part of that is just the origin of the story. No child is in foster care because their life has been great and without trauma. Foster care starts with trauma. Just the act of being in foster care is a traumatic thing for any child. And so, of course, I wanted to acknowledge that. I wanted to be as genuine and authentic as I could on behalf of these kids who I'm trying to represent a little bit in this story. So yes, there is a lot of trauma, but these kids in foster care are incredible. They're resilient. They are joyful. They're amazing human beings. And I really, I wanted to honor the fact that a lot of them come from very tough backgrounds. And so for Red, for her mom being in jail and having a a drug problem and Red has never known her father. You know, that's a reality for so many kids, especially now with the opioid crisis. There's an incredible Mm. amount of kids who are in the foster care system because of opioid addiction from their parents. But you're also assuming something about your readers, that they can handle this, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, if you've ever met a kid... You know, they can handle so much more than we probably think they can. And they're paying attention to so much more than maybe we would like them to be paying attention to. But kids are just really, they're tough, you know, and they're savvy. They know what's going on. I, I've been to so many schools and had so many kids who have asked me just incredibly insightful questions um, about the very difficult themes in the book. You know, they love the animals. They love the magic. They love that distraction and fun. But they also want to know, why is Mo- Red's mom in prison? You know, what mm. what did she do? What is the the pills that she's addicted to? What are those? And I've heard stories from kids, too. They've opened up to me. Well, my dad has done this. My mom has done this. You know, my parents this. You know, they tell me these stories. Probably there's some parents in the world going, uh-oh. <laughs> What did my child tell this author? Who was it that said, you have to write the book that wants to be written? And if it's too hard for grown-ups, you write it for kids. That was Madeline Langle. Was this a test? Did you know that's my favorite quote of all time? Did I tell you that? I, I, I can keep my secrets. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Yeah, Madeline Langle wrote that. Um, she's the author of A Wrinkle in Time. So the Newbery Award winning A Wrinkle in Time. If you read her children's literature, it's incredible the themes that she presented in her books. And and they were her kids' books, you know, and her books were banned all the time. And a lot of children's books are banned all the time mm. for talking about things like death and addiction and heartache and struggle and, you know, these real issues that kids are dealing with. 
So I really admire that about her. Her books are very brave, and I wanted to be brave as well. (laughs) There is a lot of magic in the novel, and we've mentioned this, Red's Wind, W-I-N-D. You open the book explaining that she inherited her wind from her mother, and 13-year-old Aria, who lives in Aurora, wants to know what your thought process was behind the wind. And, you know, you've described it so far as a manifestation of Red's emotions. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a tempest, right? Yeah, the wind... Partly, it was a just a happy accident, and then it became a very intentional decision. When I first started writing, I wanted to actually represent Colorado as accurately as I could. I was really writing this book right after I had moved to California, and I miss Colorado so much. And so I was trying to get the setting right. And one of the things about Colorado that is infuriating and lovely is the wind. It's so windy there, especially in the winter. And I was really starting this book in like January, February, and that's the most bitter, windy, cold time in Colorado. So as I was writing the very first scene of the book, the very first chapter, I knew that this little girl was in foster care and that she was having a bad day. She was getting kicked out of this house. So I put in the wind because it, you know, it's stormy in Colorado. It gets windy. That just seemed natural. But then the wind, without me meaning for it to, started to affect things in the house. And then I realized that as Red was getting more upset, the wind outside was getting worse. And it just clicked. And I thought, oh, she has this magical power over the wind. And I just ran with it. So it was sort of an accident. And then once I made the decision, I I knew it was right, that it really was representative of what she was going through. Ten-year-old Tegan says on Facebook, it's super windy here right now, so Red must be here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you, Tegan. I think that all the time. Every time I'm in Colorado and it's windy, I'm like, oh, Red's upset today. (laughs) Morgan Churchill in Denver asks, I was wondering why Lindsay decided that Tuck... This is the tortoise. Mm -hmm. Why Tuck should be Red's friend in the animal world and such a stronghold for the grooves. I think of Tuck as almost a second protagonist in this book. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I I love Tuck. Um, I think he became such a stronghold for Red. Really, the metaphor of Tuck became a stronghold for Red. He was... an innocent tortoise that had been brought in from Africa illegally, probably on the black market, um, the pet trade, and then he'd been abused and abandoned. And so he was really in desperate need of care when Jackson found him because Jackson is a, was a vet. And so he was able to give him the care that he needed. Jackson and is, I think is that, the foster father. Correct. Yeah. And I think that that metaphor for Red was really important. She saw Tuck as something innocent that had been hurt and had been taken from his home and been hurt. And she connected with that identity within him. But also the metaphor she doesn't know she's connecting with is Tuck has this hard outer shell. He's difficult to get to know. He seems very alien, um, especially in the environment of a petting zoo in eastern Colorado with goats and llamas and chickens, then there's a giant tortoise. That doesn't really make sense. Uh So Red sees a lot of herself in this giant tortoise who sneezes all over her when she first meets him. (laughs) Ten-year-old Zoe is apparently a fan of Tuck and asks (laughs) why you had Tuck's previous owners hurt him. Hmm. I'm sorry, Zoe. I know that that's 
hard to read about when you love a character to know that they've been hurt, especially animals. Actually, Tuck's injury was inspired by a tortoise I saw online, a real-life story of a tortoise. Um, I was on Facebook one day many years ago and saw one of those videos that pops up of a tortoise that somebody had stabbed with a screwdriver, and it was just wandering around in, I think, the desert or something, and somebody happened to find it. Its shell had even grown around the screwdriver a little bit. It had been carrying this injury for so long. Mm. And so that really inspired me. I, I knew that all the animals in this petting zoo needed to be rescued in some way, and you know, you don't just go out and rescue a tortoise unless something has happened to the tortoise generally you know rescue dogs dogs are abandoned all the time but for the more exotic animals i wanted to have their backstory be a little bit more fleshed out and of course in the video it showed that the tortoise got the care he needed and he was taken care of and he was fine and so i wanted to i pulled that little bit of real life into tuck I want to have you read something from the book because I I want to talk about Red's hobby of collecting impossible things. And this inspires the book's title, All the Impossible Things. Uh, Lindsay, will you read from Red's journal entry on page 151 about the impossible jellyfish? Yes. I'll just say that as you read the book, there are in different fonts and styles entries from Red's diary. It's kind of a a fun little nuggets throughout the book. Yeah, she keeps this journal of impossible things that it, it carries throughout the whole book, where she writes down things that seem impossible but aren't. So this is one of those entries. Once a scientist caught a jellyfish and kept it in a jar in his kitchen. Then he forgot about it. When he came back later, the jellyfish was gone. Instead, there was a tiny little blob at the bottom of the jar. But it wasn't just a blob, it was a baby jellyfish. How did it get there? What happened to the grown-up jellyfish that he had in the jar before? Turns out, that baby jellyfish was the grown-up jellyfish. When the scientist forgot about that grown-up jellyfish, it should have died. But instead, it decided to start over. It transformed back into a baby until it was safe. Then it became a grown-up all over again. This species is called the immortal jellyfish. Whenever an adult feels scared or gets hurt, it can turn back into a baby until things settle down. Then it grows up and keeps going. When life gets hard, it starts over and tries again, as many times as it takes. Mm. And that's, that's true biology. Yes, that's a real jellyfish. That's amazing. What are we to make of this hobby, collecting impossible things. <laughs> I think it's a sign of just Red's incredible resilience that she is collecting these impossible things because her mom has said to her before it's impossible for them to be a family and Red wants to prove to her mom it's not impossible just because it's hard doesn't mean it's impossible and that was something that her grandmother said to her before her grandmother passed away there's a difference between hard and impossible and so Red is trying to prove to her mom that all of these things that seem impossible really aren't so she's always on the lookout for things that are interesting or strange or gross or anything that (laughs) seems impossible but it really isn't another example of an impossible thing red collects is how bumblebees fly which actually picks up on that theme of wind tell me how how does a bumblebee fly 
Well, for a long time, everyone thought bumblebees flapped their wings up and down like a bird's. And so the laws of physics say, okay, that's impossible. A fat little bumblebee body should not be carried by their tiny little wings flapping up and down like this. It doesn't make sense. Well, it turns out that, you know, science and technology has advanced to where we can actually see that a bumblebee's wings flap forward and back really, really fast instead of up and down. So they kind of swoosh, you know, they're forward and back. And that actually creates a vortice beneath their wings. And in the case of a bumblebee, and that's true for regular bees too. They create this vortice that lifts them up and carries them around. A tornado. But in the case of, yes, a tornado. But in the case of a bumblebee, they actually create two vortices, one under each wing, which explains why they're so unstable in the air and they're they're so awkward looking because they have these two competing storms basically underneath their wings that help them fly. 11-year-old Sarah from Lakewood wants to know how you developed the character of Billy, Billy the goat. Billy the goat is the goat that climbs trees. She is a Moroccan goat. And so the first time Red encounters Billy, Billy is standing on a tree branch outside of Red's second story bedroom window, <laughs> looking in the window and surprises her. And I developed Billy because I learned about these Moroccan tree goats and I just thought they were hilarious. If you Google Moroccan tree goat, you will see pictures of trees that have all these goats in them, like they're birds, except they're not, they're goats. And I just thought it was so amazing that these goats could climb out onto these skinny little branches and not only not break the branch, but have the balance to stand there. And I just think they're hilarious. So I wanted Billy the goat to be in Colorado. (laughs) I don't know how she got from Morocco to Colorado, but she did. And she's in the tree. One thing I'm picking up on from talking to you is that you, I guess like Red, are a collector. Red collects impossible (laughs) things. You collect little bits of biography and scenes and facts, (laughs) I guess, to weave into books. Do you store those someplace outside of your head? Oh, gosh, I wish I did. (laughs) I wish I stored them somewhere much more reliable than my head. Um, maybe I should try that. You know, I think that's just part of being an author and not to refer to Madeline Langle again, but, um, she also talks about her writing process. She's compared it to making soup and she would have just different pots on the stove. And every now and then she would go and drop a potato in one and carrots in another and just let them simmer for a while. And that's sort of what it's like to be an author. You sort of have these story ideas living in your head and in your heart for years often before you start writing and you just kind of drop things in that make sense you know that'll make it a little richer make it a little tastier as time goes on and let it simmer and stew for a while so I always tell kids when I do school presentations you just never know what in your life today is going to be an inspiration to you in 20 years and my example for that is actually Tuck the tortoise Because when I was in fifth grade, I went on a road trip with my parents to South Dakota. And there's this huge place called Reptile World there. And it's kind of like Disneyland for reptiles. Okay. (laughs) Who knew? You're just driving along and there's this giant place called Reptile World. And so we were there and, you know, they had snakes and alligators. And there was this guy who was wrestling the alligators and holding all the snakes. And I I don't want that job. (laughs) 
but there was this one pen that had these enormous tortoises in it. And I had never seen a tortoise that big. I didn't know that they got to be that big when I was that age. I was so surprised. And my dad and I were just standing there looking at these giant tortoises that are a little bit boring. (laughs) And tortoises are slow. You know, they just kind of eat and stare at you. And so we were staring at these tortoises and they were staring back and all of a sudden one of them sneezed. And it just was a stream of snot coming out of its nose, (laughs) pooled at its feet, was dangling off its chin. It was so gross. And that was such a vivid memory for me that when I decided to put a tortoise into this story, I knew it was that tortoise I saw when I was in fifth grade sneezing. So you just never know what's going to make its way into your stories. I'm endlessly surprised at the things that I pull from my life and from other people's lives that ends up in my book. Colorado Springs native Lindsay Lackey has written all the impossible things. It was the first pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. We'll announce our next book soon. Special thanks to producer Alexandra McMahon, Francie Swidler on social, audio engineer Matt Hers and events manager, Kendall Smith. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.